Well, hello there and welcome everyone to Grace. We're so happy that you're here. Let me ask you a question. Is your life useful and pleasing to God? Now, I hope that's a question that you won't just slough off, but that you'll let kind of settle in and begin to impact your thinking. Is your life useful and pleasing to God. For years now, when people have asked me, hey, what is your life verse? I have often said, and I don't want people to hold me to this forever because there's honestly so many, it's hard to just say one of them, but I've often said 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Therefore also, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, to be pleasing to him. Now, I love that verse because it's not only the Apostle Paul's heart cry, but it seems to be the cry of the great men and women of God down through the ages, it, it seems to me. The NIV says we make it our goal to please God. We make it our goal. So certainly the greatest approbation that any Christ follower will ever have is that day when we stand before God and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things that we will know once and for all. Indeed, our lives were pleasing to God. It just doesn't get any better than that. I want my life to be pleasing to God. But then what about that usefulness part? Well, the Bible certainly also speaks to that. Writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, in a large house, there are not only articles of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes, some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, and here's the, here's the phrase now, made holy and useful to the master and prepared to do any good work. I've been doing a lot of reading while the time we've been away, and I was reading just a couple of days ago about an Irish leader, an evangelist in early Methodism called Gideon Oosley, and he, he made a statement that I think is just extraordinary. He said, I would rather die than live beyond my usefulness to God. Isn't that a good statement? It showed the passion of his heart. I would rather die than live beyond my usefulness to God. So the implication of the verse we just read and of Gideon Oosley's statement is that, wow, you can actually be a believer and be living in such a way that you're pretty useless to God. God forbid that any of us would get to that place. Well, we could spend probably at least an hour looking at verses that talk about usefulness and, and being pleasing to God. But let me tell you where we're going this month. Years ago, I heard this statement from the Navigators. God is looking for fat disciples. Isn't that a weird statement? Fat disciples. It's an acronym, F-A-T, that stands for faithful, available, and teachable. Surely we all want to be that. 
faithful, available, teachable. And that's where we're going this month of August. We want to talk about that. The big question is, how do we do that? How do you live a life that is faithful, available, and teachable? Well, today, I want to kick this off by talking about this whole question of faithfulness. Now, if you have a Bible of your own, I invite you to find the book of Isaiah in your Bible, and we're mostly going to be camping out in a passage in chapter 30 of Isaiah and a little bit in chapter 31. So, for the context, here's the deal. If you read the first 39 or so chapters of Isaiah, here's the basic message. The people of God have not been faithful to God. An example of that, for instance, is in chapter 1, verse 4, where he says, Ah, sinful nation. These couldn't have been easy words to hear. A people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers. What? These are the people of God? Children given to corruption, they have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Now, what does that mean? God is saying here, look, you still sound good. You still use stained glass language. You say hallelujah and praise the Lord and things like that. But your life is not matching up with what you say. Jesus, by the way, said a similar thing in Luke's gospel, chapter 6, where he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You're giving me lip service, but not life service. Why is there this disconnect between what you profess and what you actually live? There's no genuine faithfulness here, Jesus is saying. So th that's the basic message of the first part of the book of Isaiah. You're saying the right things, but your life isn't backing it up. But then we get to chapter 30, and I want you to understand the specific context behind the words that are our focus today. The people of God are being caught in a squeeze play. Here's what I mean by that. They have two powerful nations on either side of them, and they're afraid, and they don't know what to do. Has that ever happened to you, by the way? Have you ever been fearful? Have you ever been anxious? Have you ever had this thing pressing down on you and you didn't know which way to turn or what exactly you ought to do? Well, that was the dilemma that they were in. Now, I don't want to kill you with context. I don't want to kill you with too much history. But I feel that a little bit is important for you to understand how significant this was. So, real quick history lesson here. Go with me. For three kings... Saul, David, and Solomon, the people of God were a united kingdom known as Israel. That's what they're called most of the time, Israel. But at the end of Solomon's reign, something happened, and they were divided into two kingdoms. In the north, they were led by Jeroboam, and it was called Israel. Israel, so they kept the old name. And in the south, they were led by a leader named Rehoboam, and they were called Judah. So are you with me so far? For a while, they were united, called Israel, and then they became two nations, 
the north Israel, the south Judah, but they're all the people of God. They're just divided now with two different leaders. So here's the deal. The northern kingdom, which was larger, had been overcome by the nation of Assyria. So the Assyrian nation came, kind of scattered them, carried off some of their leaders, began to intermarry, began to settle in the land, and they came right up to the border of Judah. Now think about that. Here they are, the enemy, the Assyrians, are right on their border, breathing down their neck. And by the way, Judah is a pretty small nation, not very powerful. On the other side of Judah, so you got the Assyrians, on the other side to the south and southwest is the powerful nation of Egypt. So you have two superpowers on either side, and the Assyrians are getting more and more aggressive. That's what I mean when I say the pressure is mounting. And so God's people, the people of Judah, don't know where to turn or what to do. So we pick the story up in Isaiah now, chapter 30, and I'm looking here at verses 1 and 2. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge." So what have they done? When the heat was on, instead of turning to God first, what they did was they went down to Egypt, hoping that Egypt, they could trust in them to protect them from the big bad Assyrians to the north, okay? And as you can see, God was not pleased at all with that move. We read on in chapter 31 and verse 1, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Now, by the way, this is going to get really personal really fast in just a moment, trust me. So let me ask you, Christian, when the heat is on in your life, when you're feeling the pressure mounting, do you flee to Egypt, figuratively speaking? Or do you turn to God? And the reason I ask that question is because wherever we turn first, instinctively, naturally, when the heat is on, shows who we're really trusting in. This is where our faithfulness to God is really put to the test. So I invite you to go on a journey with me now as we explore this situation in their life and learn some lessons from it, and I believe it is incredibly rich. So what would some of the signs be that we're not being faithful to God? The first would be this, a tendency to stop seeking God for general wisdom. Now, let me make a quick footnote here. 
God, as you can see, was disappointed because they seemed to be trusting in their horses and chariots. Please do not take away from this that God did not want them to have any military at all. That would be a bad conclusion. In fact, if you study carefully, you'll see that God on many occasions actually instructed them to use military might in certain situations, okay? So if you're getting that this is against military or against having an army, that is far, far from the conclusion you ought to have. The main point God is making is that you're doing this in independence of me rather than dependence on me. I didn't tell you to go down to Egypt. That was not a part of my strategic plan for you. You've, you're doing your own thing, leaning on your own understanding instead of seeking me for general wisdom. Now let's have a little personal conversation here because we all live in the real world, don't we? We all know what it's like to not have enough money left at the end of, of the month. We all know what it's like to have relational discord and problems and disagreements. Surely every one of us understands what it's like to be disappointed in your health in some way or your body is not performing the way you want it to. You don't have enough strength. You're, you're feeling that your health is failing. Surely, surely all of us know what it's like to be emotionally disappointed when things don't work out the way you want it to. And listen, everyone knows what it's like to be afraid. Oh, come on. We, I mean, and anxiety right now in our culture seems to be at an all-time high. It is epidemic. People are fearful of so many things. So here's my question. When any of that happens, where do you turn? Where do you turn? When the pressure's on. Now listen, Christian, I'm talking to your heart now. If we do what all of our unbelieving neighbors do, if our life has no distinctive quality different from an unbeliever, God's not getting any glory out of that. God's basic message to Judah is, look, shouldn't you be a little different? I know the threat is real. I know the Assyrians are bearing down on you but shouldn't you look to me first and seek wisdom from me? And oh, what a powerful lesson that is for us. In John chapter six, the disciples, along with Jesus, faced a dilemma quite different. What they had that day was 5,000 men along with women and children who were very hungry and didn't have food to eat. And Jesus said, where are we going to buy bread to feed these people? He asked Philip that. And Philip made the profound statement, Lord, eight months wages would not be enough for everyone just to have a bite to eat. Now, the Bible says there in that very context that Jesus asked Philip that in order to test him. Philip was only looking to the physical and the material resources. He was not seeking the one who in his divine wisdom knows how to multiply the loaves and the fish. And I tell you far too often, my instinct, and I wonder if it's true of you, is just the same. 
The dilemma is real, whatever it is. But instead of turning to God first and genuinely expecting God in his sovereignty to be my resource, I tend to run down to Egypt for help first. Is anybody in the same boat with me? Maybe you all got it all figured out, but I don't. We all need to learn a lesson today from the people of Judah's bad example. We need to learn how God wants us to live in this day. So one tendency that you're not really being faithful to God is that you stop seeking him for general wisdom. And by the way, a big part of that is you let your time in God's word become very slack because that's where you're going to get the wisdom that you need. But a second tendency that demonstrates unfaithfulness is we stop trusting in God for deliverance. We stop trusting in him for deliverance. Uh, sometime back, Deb came to me after she had had a devotional time, and she was really excited about this verse that, do you, does the Holy Spirit ever make a verse just come alive to you? You know, it's almost jumps off the page at you. Well, Isaiah 30, verse 15, had done that to her. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. Verse 16 goes on to say, you said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses. Now, what in the world are those verses talking about? What does it mean when it says, in repentance and rest is your salvation? You know what the word repentance means, right? Change your way of thinking as well as your actions. What were they to change their way of thinking about? They were to change their way of thinking about God's sovereignty and his trustworthiness and his sufficiency in their lives. God was saying, look, instead of just frenetically going and doing your own thing and thinking you can solve this problem of the Assyrians, I need you to change your thinking. Understand that I've got resources that you aren't even taking into consideration here. It's not going to be through some fancy alliance with Egypt that this gets sorted out. So change your way of thinking about that. And what does it mean when it says there, in quietness and trust is your strength? I mean, come on. This threat was very real. Is God asking to just sit back and do nothing? Hope you're listening. God is into quietness. Are you listening? But he's not into quietism. If you want to look this up and do a little research on your own, you'll find out that the quietistic movement, quietism was a religious movement that impacted both Catholicism and Protestantism in the 1600s and 1700s. And became, in fact, it became a huge influence in the Moravian Christian movement in the 1700s. Here's what quietism was about. Very interesting. It was based on such a dependence and reliance on God that the teaching was, we don't need to do anything. 
We'll just trust in God, but we will not provide any effort on our part. It was a very passive approach to the Christian life and to sanctification. And I'm telling you today, that is one seriously misguided movement. So let me say it again. God is into quietness, but he's not into quietism. He wants us to wait for him, as verse 18b says in today's text, blessed are all who wait for him, but he does not want us to wait for him and do nothing. So Christians, please hear me today. When you get caught in a squeeze play like Judah was, and the pressure is really on, trust me, God hasn't abandoned you. Some of you need to hear this message today because you're feeling the squeeze play in your own life. You're feeling the pressure, the fear, the anxiety crowding in on you. God has not abandoned you. He's working out an agenda in your life always, 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 but it probably won't come quickly. Did you hear that? God is not into microwave transformation He's always working out his agenda, but it usually takes time, and it's in the time that our character gets built. Judah should, as a nation, as a people, they should have understood that by now. And as the Assyrians were bearing down on them, their first instinct should have been, God, you're all sufficient. God, you're awesome. You've proved it over and over again. And we're feeling the pressure. It's very real. But we want to declare we trust in you first. We seek you for wisdom. We trust in you for deliverance, not in our military might. Now, let me give you a little warning here. Every time you go to Egypt, you're going to pay for it. Say, what do you mean by that? Every time we frenetically forget God and do our own thing and think we're going to get an answer to this. We're going to lean on our own understanding. We're going to figure out how to get relief from this. You always end up being in some kind of bondage. And by the way, don't have time to go there today. It would bore most of you to death. But the Egypt started exacting tribute from Judah because of the military protection they were supposedly providing to them. Just saying, it's a powerful metaphor for our lives. We always end up being in some kind of bondage anytime we flee to Egypt for help. God wants us to turn to him first. So God is neither into quietism nor into activism. The two great classic mistakes that Christians have made is to think it's all God and I do nothing or it's all me and God has nothing to do with it. Now, if you have your Bible, let me show this to you. Let me show you how God wants this balance in our perspective. Find the book of 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter, toward the back of your Bible, chapter 1. And I want you to see how this goes together. 2 Peter chapter one. And verse three is one of my favorite little verses in the Bible. Here's what it says. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything 
pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now, that is an amazing statement. Here's what that means. Everything you need to flourish in your Christian life, God's given it to you. Everything. What can you add to everything? Logically, nothing, right? If you got it all, I mean, you can't really add anything to that. And he goes on to say in verse four, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. So it's all there. You can't do anything more than everything. God's given you all you need, praise God. But notice the paradox here, starting in verse 5. Now, for this very reason, what reason? Because God's already given you everything you need. Also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. Wait a minute, I thought we had it all. The NIV says you're supposed to start adding. Wait a minute, how can you add something when you've got it all? Is your mind just kind of melting down right now like mine is? It sounds like God's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. If you've got everything you need, how can you add anything to it? It doesn't make sense to me. I don't know about you. And in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you, here's the phrase now, neither useless nor unfruitful. That's what we don't want to be, remember? Gideon Usley, I'd rather die than outlive my usefulness to God. Oh, I don't want my life to be useless to God. These qualities are yours and are increasing. They will render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you seeing the paradox, friends, I'm talking about? If you're being honest, you're looking at Simon Peter about now going, dude, are you on drugs when you wrote this? I mean, what is wrong with you, man? Seriously, what's wrong with you? You are being totally contradictory here. You're saying on the one hand, God's given us everything, and then you're turning around and saying we need to add more to it. What gives? Real Christians are the only ones who need to listen to what I'm about to say. So if you're not a real Christian, tune out right now. Every enabling grace that God grants to you and me calls for a corresponding act of disciplined obedience. So it's never just quietism or activism. It's never just, well, it's all God or it's all me. Think about David and Goliath. David walked up to the giant Goliath and made a bold declaration God is going to give you into my hands this day. Boy, that's trash talk right there. God's going to give you into my hands. So what did David do at that point? After making that declaration, he's basically saying, God's got this. I'm depending on God. Did he sit back and go, okay, God, do your thing. Bop him upside the head. Give him a stroke. Massive coronary right now. No. He with disciplined action takes a stone and 
flings it. So did God do it or did David do it? That's a powerful metaphor of how God makes us useful and pleasing to him. Years ago, I heard a preacher use this illustration, and I think it made the point well, so I want to use it now. Many of you drove a car here today, okay? And your car's sitting out in a parking lot right now. And if your car's engine should talk, you know, could talk, you know what your engine might say to the rest of the car? Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what the engine might boast to the rest of the car, to the tires, to the windshield, to every other part of the car. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And you know what? In a sense, that's right. Without that engine, I'm sorry, that car's not going anywhere. Hey, it might coast down a hill for a while, but at the bottom, it's finally going to peter out because there's no power. And guess what Jesus said? Jesus said to his disciples and to us, apart from me, without me, you can do nothing. Let me ask you something. Is your car doing anything right now other than just sitting there? I kind of hope not. I mean, I, I hope that's all it's doing right now. I ho hope there's not a party going on out there. With, no, your car can't do anything unless what? Unless what happens? You have to go out there and unlock it. You have to get behind the steering wheel, buckle up, place your hands on the steering wheel. You have to start the engine. You have to put your foot on the pedal, and you have to steer that thing down the road. Now, let me ask you a question. What is making that car go? Is it the engine? Or is it the driver? And the clear answer is both. So let's not default to that great classic mistake that the people of God have always tended to make. We tend to go to these foolish extremes. It's all God, and therefore, I'm not going to lift a finger. Or the opposite horrible extreme is, if it's to be, it's up to me. Oh, that's bad theology. Wow. It takes both. Every enabling grace of God in our lives calls for a corresponding act of disciplined obedience. And let's remember that, dear friends. So there's one final thing I want to focus on as we close. A third tendency that demonstrates unfaithfulness is we stop listening to God for specific guidance. Now, folks, listen to me. As far as I'm concerned, we're talking now this month about being fat disciples, faithful, available, teacher, teachable. I think you're going to get a lot. I think we're going to grow a lot through this little mini-series. But today, we're focusing on faithfulness. And as far as I'm concerned, a faithful Christian is one who daily, indeed, I believe, moment by moment, listens for the guidance of God. But here in Isaiah 30, look what the people had come to as we read in chapter 30, verse 19. O people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, 
your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them. Sometimes I fear that you may think I beat this theme to death, but I must say it again. While none of us would welcome the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, our teachers, he calls them teachers here. Did you see that? Did you know that affliction and adversity are our teachers? That's what the Bible teaches right here. You read it with your own eyes. You saw it for yourself. While none of us would welcome those things, we're pretty twisted if we look forward to that, okay? Consistently, over and over, the Bible says God uses the bread of affliction and the waters of adversity to be our teachers and to teach us. And oh, what a shallow understanding it is of the Christian life when our very first interest is for God to release us from the very things that are our teachers. God says, look, I'm ready to answer. Are you listening? Are you listening to my voice? And then he gives this amazing statement in verse 21. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Faithful Christian, you can expect daily the guidance of God. I'm not saying it's going to be a voice like that. That's not been my experience. But what I'm saying is that you will be guided as God, by his spirit, nudges you, prompts you, directs you by the word and by those impressions direct as he illuminates the word, he will direct your life into the way he wants you to go. So here's my final word today. Here's what I believe as we kick off this little mini-series. Next week, we're gonna talk about how to just, just be available to God because availability is usually more important than ability, honestly. And then we're gonna wrap it up by talking about the humility that comes with teachability. I, I just believe this is gonna be a blast as we dive into all this. But here, here's my final word today. I believe if God... If God gave you a glimpse right now of all the good he has in store for you, I believe, I believe you'd literally have holy goosebumps. I believe that. But I just as surely believe that we miss out, like Judah, like Judah, we miss out on so much God has for us when our first default is not to look to God but to whatever proverbial help we can get from the Egypts in our lives. Oh, let us be a people where our first holy instinct is, God, what is your word? God, what do you desire on this? God, which way do you want me to go? God, how do you want me to respond to this fear and anxiety that is pressing down on me? Because you are my deliverer. Father, Thank you for what we learned through your word. It is so glorious. And may you continue to receive glory and honor through our lives this day because we belong to you, Lord. And we ultimately, at the end of the journey, want to hear well done, good, and faithful servant. We want our lives to be pleasing to you and useful. So let us be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.